Section 27 of Uncollected Short Stories of L. M. Montgomery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Uncollected Short Stories of L. M. Montgomery by Lucy Maud Montgomery. The Bitterness in the Cup. Part 2. Queenslea is a quaint old town harking back to early colonial days and wrapped in its ancient atmosphere as some fine old dame in garments fashioned like those of her youth. Here and there it sprouts out into modernity, but at its heart it is still unspoilt and is full of curious relics and girt about with various legends of the past. Once it was a mere frontier station on the fringe of the wilderness, and those were the days when Indians made life interesting for the settlers. Then it grew to be a bone of contention between British and French, being occupied now by the one and now by the other, emerging from each occupation with some fresh scar of battling nations branded on it. It has in its park a Martello Tower, autographed all over by tourists, a dismantled old French fort on the hills beyond the town, and several antiquated cannon in its public square. It has other historic spots also, which may be hunted out by the curious, and none is so quaint and delightful as the old St. Paul's Cemetery at the very core of the town, with streets of fashionable residences on two sides, the courthouse on the third, and the opera house on the fourth. Every citizen of Queenslea feels a thrill of possessive pride in the old cemetery, for if he is of any pretensions at all, he has an ancestor buried there with a queer, crooked brown slab at his head, or else sprawled protectively over the grave, on which all the main facts of his history are recorded. The graveyard is very full and very bowery, for it is surrounded and intersected by rows of willows and chestnuts beneath which the old sleepers must lie very dreamlessly, forever crooned to by the winds and leaves over them. Mark knew Queenslea better than most of those who lived in it, for he had explored it very thoroughly in the two years he had spent at its academy. He was well acquainted among its people, and might reasonably expect a pleasant social time during his visit when his old friends should have found out that he was in town. He put up at a quiet hotel a block away from the cemetery, and spent the first day strolling about the quaint streets of the old town. At night he was rather at a loss for what to do with himself. Then, catching sight of a huge poster on the building opposite his hotel, he decided that he would go to the opera house. A travelling company was filling a three-weeks engagement in Queenslea. It was only a third-rate one, but Mark did not know this, being very unsophisticated in regard to theatrical affairs. He had never seen a play or opera in his life, Queenslea not having possessed an opera house in his time. He bought his ticket and went to his seat in the parquet, where he amused himself watching the house through the opera glasses he had borrowed from an acquaintance at the hotel. The house was full, for it was the first night the new company had played. There was a fair sprinkling of women in evening dress, 
with jewels glittering on their white necks and fluffy swan's downs slipping from their gleaming shoulders. And Mark, who was a beauty worshipper like his mother, albeit quite unconscious of it, feasted his eyes on their loveliness. There was a stir and rustle all over the building, an atmosphere of mingled perfumes, a murmur of voices and low laughter. Once he thought of Louis Wilbur, but the idea of her had nothing in common with the scene around him, and he put it away from him with an undefined feeling of preserving something sacred from contamination. The curtain went up, and the stage was filled with chorus girls. Mark did not fancy their appearance greatly. He thought them loud and tawdry, and even his untrained eye could see that their makeup was atrocious. But he liked their singing and dancing, which was really very good for such a company. Afterwards, when Beatrice Lyle came on, he forgot about them and about everybody else. She came forward to the footlights amid rounds of applause, for she had been in Queenslea before and was popular with theatre-goers, more, it might be, for her childish prettiness and coquettish charm of manner than for her talent, though she acted respectably and sang well. Mark Berry caught his breath at sight of her. Something swept into his heart and brain that changed life for him in the twinkling of an eye, although at the time he was conscious of nothing save a wild, sweet inrush of undreamed-of emotion and deeps that stirred at the sight of Beatrice Lyle's face as they had stirred at nothing in life before. She looked so beautiful, so innocent, so appealing, her lovely face was as tender-lipped and expressive as a child's. Her eyes were dark and soft and, it might be added, very well managed, although Mark knew nothing of that. He saw and heard no more of the opera than her part. The ballet sang and danced and kicked, the comedian sprinkled jokes and local hits lavishly, the handsome tenor warbled and rolled his eyes, all in vain as far as Mark Barry was concerned. To him there was only one person on the stage, the girl with the child face and the great laughter-brimmed eyes. Newspaper critics went to their offices after the opera and wrote that Beatrice Lyle was in excellent form that night. This meant that her part in the opera suited her, and that she was feeling in a mood to do it justice. She had some talent, although nothing of genius, and a personality that went far to enhance it. She sang and sparkled through the four acts, with an enchanting vein of sadness underlying every look and gesture, and her audience cheered her to the echo. Mark alone sat silent and tense. When the curtain fell on the last act, he breathed heavily once or twice, like a man newly aroused from sleep, and went out with unseeing eyes, staring over the heads of the crowd. At the door, the man who had loaned him the opera glasses joined him. "'What did you think of Lyle?' he asked carelessly, as they went down the street. "'Clever little monkey, isn't she?' 
She's the salvation of that company. They would play to empty seats without her. She always takes well in Queen's Lear. She's worth looking at, and her voice will do. Mark flinched. This man's light comment was sacrilege. It was as if Clay reviled divinity. He could not sleep that night, but tossed restlessly. Once he thought of Louis Wilbur. She seemed to him now as a tale that is told. He could not believe that it was so brief a space of time since he had stood in the Ruthaglen moonlight with her, and wondered if she cared for him. He believed now that she did not, and he was glad. The next day he was restless and unhappy. He did not care to hunt out old friends. His one wish was to kill time in some speedy way until night came, when he might expect to see her again. In the afternoon he went to the old St. Paul graveyard. It had been his favourite haunt in his academy years when a passion for solitude came over him, and he went to it now because he thought he would be alone there, and in its green unworldliness he might think and dream of her undisturbed. On entering it, he was vexed to see a woman sitting on a slab at the further end, but the great solemn place was big enough for both, and he turned away to a remote corner, where a seventeen-year-old middy, who was wounded to the death in a sea-fight over a hundred years ago, was buried. There was no one else in the graveyard, and so thick were the willows around its railing that even the murmur of the streets beyond was dulled. He could think of her here, could give himself up to dreaming about her. By the middy's lichened slab he found a woman's chatelaine purse, a small dainty affair of steel beads lying amid the long grasses. There was nothing in it, save some small coins and a broken pearl pin. As he searched it for some mark of ownership, he became aware that the woman at the other end of the cemetery was walking among the graves, looking about her searchingly. No doubt this pretty trifle was hers, and she had just discovered its loss. He went quickly down the long leafy arcade towards her. At the sound of his coming, she turned and looked up expectantly. He stood before her, mute and worshipful, forgetting all else in his delight and surprise. It was she, his sweet lady, yet not the Beatrice Lyle of the footlights, not the flushed radiant creature, half spirit, half flame he had last seen her. This girl was small and slender, like a wood flower, in her soft trailing grey dress. Beneath the shadow of her large hat, her face was white and spiritual. The eyes he had thought dark were limpid grey, with dilating startled pupils. The soft rings of her golden hair clung about her face, and her mouth was curved as sweetly as a baby's, with a wistful droop at its corners. How beautiful and tired she looked, with pathetic purple shadows under those lovely, wide-open eyes. It did not seem strange that he should meet her here in this fashion. It would only have seemed strange now if they had not met. The merest moment elapsed before she spoke, yet to Mark it seemed as if he had lived through a lifetime of emotion in that space. Oh! she exclaimed in a bell-like voice. 
You have found my purse. I am so glad. I feared that I had lost it. She held out her hand, and Mark gave it to her in silence. He had never been awkward or abashed in a woman's presence before. Now he could not find a word to say. His face, however, had he but known it, was expressive enough to atone for lack of words. Beatrice Lyle dropped her eyes to hide the amused comprehension in them. She knew quite well what that blush and hesitation meant. She had seen that same look of admiration on many men's faces before, but there was something else in Mark's to which she was not accustomed. Reverence mingled with the passion of his eyes, as if he looked at something holy, and a tenderness of which she knew little spoke to her from his rapt gaze. "This is a lovely old spot, is it not?" she said. As she fastened the purse to her belt, I come here every afternoon when there is no matinee. It rests me. I saw you at the opera house last night," said Mark irrelevantly. She smiled openly this time. He was really delightful. This handsome boy to whom concealment seemed a thing impossible and alien. Her smile was elfin and bewitching. In Mark's eyes, it humanized her. She was now a girl to be wooed and won, as other girls. Yes, she said questioningly. Oh no, I don't think you did. You saw the Beatrice Lyle of the footlights. I am not she. I am quite different. Oh, I am not the same person at all. I have two existences, you see. This is the one I like best. No doubt she meant it at the moment, or thought she did, and moreover, she had an instinct for saying the right thing to the right person. The truth was that before Mark's appearance, she had been feeling bored and had just made up her mind to go when she missed her purse. Now she thought it might be worth while to linger a little. If you belong to Queenslea. You must know this old graveyard well," she went on. "I wish you would tell me about it. There must be some interesting graves here. Explain them to me. Tell me their stories. Come." She made a pretty gesture, half invitation, half command, and moved away over the grasses. Mark followed, wondering if his good fortune could be real. "I'm not a Queenslea man," he said. But I've been here often, and I know the place pretty well. I have always loved it. I am glad you like it too. Together they rambled up and down the leafy arcades, pausing frequently to look at some especially notable monument. Beatrice read the epitaphs aloud in her silver voice, and sometimes they laughed softly over a quaint phrase or expression. She liked the soldiers' graves best. She said, and knelt by the little middy's grave and touched her lips to the mossy stone. But by the grave of a lad scarce out of boyhood, who had fallen in a duel of three generations ago, fought on the square of ground at the north side of the cemetery, over the smiles of a fair lady of old Queenslea, she dropped the red rose from her belt. For love's sweet sake, she quoted softly. He died for love, you know, so I'll give him my red, red rose. 
When she grew tired, they sat down on a freestone slab beneath which an earth-all-time pompous dignitary of state slept humbly. She told Mark much about herself, guessing that that was what he most wanted to hear. She hated the stage, she said. The life was hard and sometimes she was so tired. Her time with the company she was now in expired with the Queensley engagement, and she did not intend to remain longer with them. I don't like them, she said, patting the tips of her grey-gloved fingers together with the gesture he was to learn was a favourite one with her. And they don't like me either. Of course, the star is not often loved. One has to pay a penalty for the privilege of twinkling, you see. No, I shall try for another company. There is nothing else for me to do. But it is very hard. There is no glamour on the wrong side of the footlights. When they left the graveyard, she bade Mark goodbye at the gate. But, but, you are going to let me see you again? He asked imploringly. She looked at him with an expression he thought adorable. It was quizzical and sweet and provoking. She patted her fingertips together. Why, anyone can see me who wishes. She said with laughter, threading her tones. You must have your ticket, of course. They won't let you in without. You know I don't mean that, he said. And besides, didn't you tell me back there that the Beatrice Lyle of the footlights wasn't you? It is you I want to see. She laughed again. So he could be apt enough, too, this broad-shouldered young fellow, when he found his tongue. She liked him. She threw a relenting glance back into the green domains behind them. I am in St. Paul every day at this hour, she said. It is a large place, and I don't suppose they would let me lock the gates on other people even if I wanted to. And, if they did, you could scramble over the railing, I think. She was gone then, and Mark, his face alight, went back to the cemetery and to the grave with the red rose. He would not have disturbed it for worlds, but he knelt down and kissed it, and one full red petal that had fallen from its overripe heart he carried away with him, fast shut in his hand like a precious treasure. He went to a florist and ordered yellow roses to be sent to Miss Lyle at her hotel. She had told him she loved yellow roses, she wore them on the stage that night, and Mark felt that his day's cup of happiness was full. After that, they met every afternoon in old St. Paul's. Mark lived only for those hours. His friends in Queenslea saw little of him. Every meeting deepened his passionate love for her. She was never in the same mood twice. One day she would be a very sprite of mischief, mocking and elusive, who laughed at him until his heart ached for love of her. Another day would find her as frank and gay as a child, bubbling over with careless enjoyment and pleased outspokenly with everything around her. Again she would be wistful and quiet, given over to dreamy words and ways and pathetic little looks, a mood in keeping with the solitude of their trysting place.
Only at such times did Mark talk to her of Rutherglen and his mother. One day, she seemed unusually quiet and shadowy, as they sat side by side on the old dignitary's tombstone. Her face was very white, and the violet shadows under her eyes were deeper than usual. She was so tired, she said, with a little break in her voice. Sometimes it seemed to her that she would never get rested again. I envy the sleepers in this silent land, she said wistfully. I would like to lie down here and sleep forever. Sometimes I am afraid I shall break down altogether. And if I do. She paused and shivered a little. The life you live is too hard for you, said Mark hotly. You are not fitted for it. You are an utter alien to it. You should be queen in a home of your own, safely shut up in the heart of some man who will love and cherish you to the end of life. Beatrice smiled sadly. There is no such man, she said. At least in my profession we don't meet such men. There is one, said Mark steadily. He put his arm about her reverently. One Beatrice who loves you with all his heart and soul. Will you come to me, dearest? I am not worthy of you, I know. But if love can make up, oh, let me take you away forever from this false life of yours. I can make you happy if you will come, dear. She let him draw her head down on his shoulder. She had been waiting to hear the words he had just spoken. Perhaps she loved him somewhat. Too, as much as her tired, shop-worn little heart could love, she turned her flower-like face up to him. Kiss me, dear, she murmured softly. To Mark, as his lips met hers, all heaven seemed opened. She was his, his own forever, his pure, sweet lady of the sorrowful eyes, eyes that it must henceforth be his dear privilege to brim with the light of happiness. His voice was a mere husky whisper as he said, Beatrice, Beatrice, I thank God for you. To Aunt Nan and Lewis, the fortnight of Mark's absence had slipped by pleasantly. They were glad he was staying so long, they told each other with harmless hypocrisy. Aunt Nan thought he might have written, but she supposed he was rollicking about Queenslea with his old friends, and didn't realise how the days were passing. For the rest, she and Lewis gave themselves over to having a good time and were like two schoolchildren together. In the morning, Lewis went down to the valley to her school, but in the evening she came back and the two women talked and read together, or sat in the garden and dreamed, the one the dreams of age, the other of youth. Lewis had a secret sense of happiness in being in Mark's home. It seemed to bring them nearer together in a sweet, inexplicable way. In every room there was something that spoke of him. She liked to loiter in the little place he called his den, an odd, cornery little room close under the eaves, looking out into the emerald gloom of the birchwood, where he kept his books and pictures and his souvenirs of boyhood and college life. In the cabinet of geological specimens she found the lost fairy glass, Afterwards, she could never think of the hours she had spent there without bitterness. She knew then how they must have passed with him, 
there is nothing in some sorrows so terrible as their power of staining the leaves of our past they will not leave us even our memories untainted when mark came back to ruthaglen he felt as if he were returning to a life lived centuries ago yet he came back to it gladly for he and beatrice had made their plans and the ruthaglen life was henceforth to be lived with her Everything in his past seemed remote and far away, for the spell of his enchantment was still strong upon him. Lewis Wilbur was a memory, a woman he had known in that other life. This attitude coloured his greeting of her, although he was unconscious of it. Lewis, with her quick intuition, felt it. He had walked in on them unexpectedly, in the dreamy stillness of the afternoon and she had coloured over cheek and brow at the suddenness of it. He did not even notice her blush and reserve. He was absent-minded, and Aunt Nan rallied him on it. She said she supposed he would find them very dull and countrified after Queenslea, but he would get used to that in time. The sweet old soul was overjoyed to have him home again and fussed about him as over a petted child. Lewis went home with a heartache for which, her native sense of humour coming to her aid, she ridiculed herself. She had not expected him to catch her in his arms and kiss her as he had his mother, had she? What was the matter then? This too much romantic daydreaming. I must be more common sensible in future, she said, trying to smile at herself. In school the next morning one of her pupils, who lived on the other side of the Berry Hill, gave her a crumpled envelope addressed in a faltering angular hand. It was from Aunt Nan, and was written with an unfeigned disregard of capitals and punctuation. Indeed, the spelling itself was not impeachable. Aunt Nan was not conscious of these defects when she had written shakily on the cheap, blue-lined sheet of paper. Dear Lewis, I want you to come up the hill after school. Please, you must be sure to come. Something dreadful has happened. I don't know what to do, Lewis. Aunt Nan. P.S. Don't forget to come. There were some spots on the page that looked like tear blisters. The note unsettled Lewis for the day. Her thoughts instantly flew to Mark. It must be something connected with him. Was he really ill? That languor before the Queenslier visit? Was it the indication of some serious trouble and not the mere effect of his attack of influenza? Perhaps he had found that out in Queenslear. That would account for his abstraction of the night before. The day seemed to her as if it would never end. Her work perplexed and worried her. When school was out, at last, she hurried up the hill. When she went in, Aunt Nan was sitting by the low west window of the kitchen. Her erect little body was bowed and limp her delicate old face discoloured and her eyes swollen. "'Oh, Aunt Nan, what is it?' exclaimed Lewis, taking her hands. "'Is... is Mark ill?' "'No.' Aunt Nan's voice was hoarse and gasping from her sobbing. "'No, it isn't that. I had to be the one to tell you, Lewis. I couldn't let anyone else do it.' Oh, Lewis, Mark is going to be married to a girl he met in Queenslea, an actress. He told me all about it last night. He... he was dreadful hurt because I told him I'd never forgive him or her. It's just killed me. 
Oh, Louis, what am I to do? Louis, with her chestnut hood against the frame of the window, on whose broad sill she had seated herself, looked out through the birches to the curve of the lane. It was less than three minutes since she had come around that curve, a happy-hearted girl, with only a vague fear to trouble her. She wondered dimly if all this wreck and ruin and desolation of life could have come in three minutes. Her face was white to the lips, but no expression appeared on it. It was as calm as a marble mask. She lifted the spray of golden rod she had gathered on her uphill road and tapped her chin with it as if her thoughts were far away. Her immobility angered Aunt Nan, whose nerves were wrought up to an irritable pitch by her suffering. "'You don't seem to mind it much, Louis,' she said resentfully. "'I thought you'd feel it worse than I did, after Mark going with you for nearly a year and everybody saying, "'Aunt Nan!' Louis's eyes flashed around to meet the older woman's. For only a moment they looked at each other so. But Aunt Nan never, then or at any other time, said another word on this aspect of the affair to Louis. She had seen straight down into another woman's tortured soul, sounding such deeps of agony in her gaze as she realised should be sacred from such profanation. Oh, I'm sorry I said that, Louis. She faltered feebly, pressing her hands together. Don't mind me. I'm just half crazy, that's all. I could turn on my best friend like a savage beast. My boy has been stolen from me. Oh, I hate her, Louis. I hate her. Oh, you don't know her, yet, said Louis, trying amid all the flood of misery that was rising in her own soul to comfort Mark's mother. She may be very sweet and lovable. She must be, or Mark wouldn't have loved her. I don't care how sweet she is, said Aunt Nan fiercely. I told Mark so. He painted her as an angel. Louis, she's an actress. Many good and lovely women are actresses, said Louis dully. Oh, I know that. I'm not so narrow and begotted as to think that a woman can't be good just because she acts for her living. It ain't that. It's just because she must be different from us. She can't have anything in common with us. You know she can't. What will our lives here be to her after she gets tired of it? If I thought it was best for Mark, I'd try to reconcile myself to it, even if it broke my heart. But it isn't. It isn't. Mark'll live to be sorry for it. And he'll bring her here, here where I've dreamed of seeing. Louis, what can I do? She wept again bitterly, with the terrible helpless tears of old age. Louis set her own agony resolutely under her feet, understanding that she must help Aunt Nan to drain her cup of bitterness before she might have even the rueful comfort of putting her own to her lips. All the sweet strength of her womanhood rose to her aid. She gathered Aunt Nan's hands tenderly in her own firm grasp and said gently, Just what you told me you would do when Mark brought his wife home to you. Open your heart to her and welcome her as a daughter. Oh, Louis, when I said that, I meant... I didn't mean... You meant just what you said, dear, said Louis hurriedly. Mark is going to bring her home now. 
give her the welcome he looks to you for. It will be best, indeed it will, and everything may be much better than you expect. You may learn to love her very dearly. I don't want to love her. That's the trouble. I suppose I am a wicked old woman. When you were here that afternoon before Mark went to Queenslea, do you mind my telling you that I had lived long enough to learn how to keep my temper and be tolerant of other folks' whimsies? Well, it has all fallen from me now, just when I most need it. I'm in a temper to my heart's core, Lewis, and I feel as bitter and resentful as I ever did in my life. Oh, I know you're right, and I'll have to come to it, but I can't until the bitterness wears away a little. Indeed, I can't. When is Mark to be married? asked Lewis, after a silence. She could have laughed scornfully to hear herself asking the question so calmly. Aunt Nan made a restless movement. I don't know quite. This girl, Beatrice Lyle, her name is. Well, her engagement with the company she's in is out in a week's time, and Mark wants me to invite her here for a visit. She hasn't got any folks of her own, and she's tired and run down, Mark says. Then, when she has got well rested, they're to be married. Oh, and to think I almost made Mark go to Queenslear. You're not going yet, Lewis? I must. I have some schoolwork to do this evening, and Mother may need me. She was afraid that Mark might come in, being unaware that he was away at the shore. Besides, she knew she must soon be alone or her pain would break bounds in spite of her pride. Perhaps Aunt Nan understood this, for she made no further protest. She followed Lewis to the door with a working face. You've helped me some, Lewis. I'll try to do as you say. But, oh, things can never be the same again. She stood on the sun-hot doorstone amid the undaunted cohorts of the hollyhocks, and watched Lewis out of sight down the lane. The girl knew it and walked erectly with unfaltering step. She's proud, muttered Aunt Nan. Too proud to let on she cares, even to me. But if ever I saw a broken heart looking out of a woman's eyes, then it looked out of Lewis Wilbur's tonight. I'm glad that I told her, not someone else. It came easier from me. Her pride'll help her through some. And she's young. But I'm old. Old, and there's nothing left in life. Oh, Mark. Mark. She sat down on the doorstep and wept bitterly. Mark found her there, huddled up and spent when he came home. His face darkened with pain but he lifted her up very tenderly and carried her in. She put up her hand and touched his brown cheek softly. Mark, I... I oughtn't to have said those things to you last night about your girl, nor about Lewis, neither. You can ask Miss Lyle to visit here and I'll try to do my part. Mark kissed her. Thank you, little mother. I felt sure you would come to see it so. You are sure to love Beatrice when you know her. As for Lewis Wilbur, she never cared for me. I've always known that even when I was inclined to hope she might learn to in time. 
Aunt Nan's dark eyes looked up at him through the dusk as she wondered how men could be so blind. The evening before she had wildly reproached him with trifling with Louis Wilbur, making her love him and then casting her aside. She repented this now. She felt that it was unjust to Louis, and she hastened to unsay her words. No, Louis doesn't care. I thought maybe she did, but I was mistaken. I've just been an old fool believing things because I wanted to believe them. She was here tonight, and when I told her I could see she didn't care a bit. She was as unconcerned and interested as you please. Aunt Nan uttered this lie calmly. It did not disturb her conscience in the least. On the contrary, she exulted in it. She felt that she owed it to Lewis. Mark ought to have been glad to hear her statement. He told himself that he was, but his voice was hardly cordial as he answered. I'm glad of that, mother. I was quite sure it couldn't be as you feared. Lewis is a grand woman, and I prize her friendship very dearly. But we couldn't fall in love with each other just because you wanted to, you see. I shall look to Lewis to be one of Beatrice's best friends. You'll look for what you'll never see, then. Aunt Nan muttered under her breath as he went out. There's a limit to anybody's goodness, even Lewis Wilbur's. She'll never like your wife and she won't pretend to. She's got that much human nature in her, at least. But I'm glad I lied to Mark about her not caring. Yes, I am. If I was in her place, I'd want the same done for me. She began to cry again, but not wishing Mark to see her, she crept forlornly off to her room. I've lost everything. She moaned to herself in the darkness that was fragrant with the mint of perfume blowing in through the open window. Even my home will never be the same to me again with that interloper here. Oh, I oughtn't to call her that, Mark's girl. It's wicked and heartless of me. Lois Wilbur had gone home through the ripened splendour of the afternoon, her heart sick within her. She would not go by the lane through the firs, although it was much shorter. She could not have borne that. It was the way she and Mark had always taken. She chose the main road instead, although with the instinct of a hunted animal, she shrank from the possible meetings with neighbours. She felt as if the whole story of her wasted love and smarting pride must be blazoned on her face for every curious eye to read. She thought of the days to come with shrinking. How could she live through them? When she reached home, she hurried to her own room, thankful to get to it unseen. She locked the door and threw herself face downward on the bed, envying Aunt Nan her relief of tears. Lewis could not cry. Her eyes burned, her throat throbbed chokingly, but no tears came. This is the bitterness in my cup, she thought dully. It has come very soon. Oh, Mark! She put her hands over her aching eyes and lay very still. End of section 27